Arizona basketball is rolling. Oh, yeah, Tommy Lloyd's team's doing pretty good, too. The football team with another moral victory. You tired of those yet? And we'll wrap it all up with the important take of the day. Metallica. Old albums, new albums. You're listening to the Wildcat Sports Report Podcast. A little bit of sad news on the personal front. Uh, Last week, uh, we had to say goodbye to one of our family dogs, uh, Marty, a.k.a. Marty the Kid. He was 14-year-old. The interesting story with Marty is my wife actually stole him from somebody. He was being uh, neglected. My wife stole him, bribed him with a piece of ham, and uh, he was a tough little dog. Uh, He actually suffered uh, severe back damage that led him to have uh, no use of his rear legs for a few weeks. We actually had to rehab him, you know, basically using a towel to help him walk. He refused to eat anything other than protein for about three or four months. Bulked up, looked like a Tasmanian devil, but basically retaught himself to walk. And before that, would just scoot around on two legs. He was like, damn it, I'm going wherever I want. Uh, Just a few months ago, he tore his ACL. Uh, we elected not to have surgery, being that he was 14 years old, and he just never slowed down. Hopped around for a few weeks, and eventually just went back. Could do everything except for beg. He used to sit up like a look like a bear and beg, but unfortunately he had a massive seizure last week and uh, never quite recovered, and we had to put him down. So this podcast dedicated to the memory of uh, Marty, a.k.a. Marty the Kid, a.k.a. Martson Fartson. He was really my wife's dog more than anything. She's a little upset, but uh, we'll miss him as he was at my feet for many of these podcasts. Although today, even older dog, Calvin, uh, who some of you may have remembered if you have really good memories, was actually shouted out by Vinny Vinzetta on the old sports force on uh, KMSB. Uh, 16-year-old Calvin sitting by my feet as well as we record this. So let's jump into it. Tia Barnes and the U of A women's basketball team continue to absolutely roll. Two blowout victories, including a 43-point win over uh, Cal State Northridge to open the season, a 55-point win over Texas Southern uh, last night, if you're listening to this on Tuesday. And then the most impressive one, maybe the win of all of uh, women's college basketball, upsetting maybe kind of sorta number six louisville 61 59 in overtime kate reese was really the standout in that one scoring 21 points on her way to earning pac-12 player of the week honors and uh, it'll be an interesting stretch coming up for uh the wildcats they get marist on friday which again should be an easy win then they get a vanderbilt team that is uh in the SEC, but they're only 1-2 and two to start the year. Uh, Arizona actually has Corey Love, who played for them a year ago. Uh, then they get a uh, DePaul Blue Demon team uh, that is and 2-1, but has already lost to uh, Texas A&M, so not a bad loss for the Blue Demons, who have played some pretty good basketball. And they play well up-tempo, so that should be fun. They've scored 114, 87, and 75 in their th- uh, three games. They close out the uh, month of November with a game against Rutgers. Uh, the Scarlet Knights are 3-0, and but have not really blown people out. In fact, they escaped with a six-point win 
over Fairview just the other night. Now, we'll learn a lot more about all these teams the Wildcats have to play because they're all kind of playing each other in this event as DePaul, Vanderbilt, and Arizona, and Rutgers all playing in the same event. Then December, uh, again, Arizona will get some... Uh, a little bit of a break. They get UC Riverside. They get North Dakota State. They get New Mexico. They get Northern Arizona. And then their last challenge before opening Pac-12 play, that December 19th game against number 12, Texas. And then they jump right into the thick of the Pac-12. And, you know, just a day after New Year's has uh, 20th ranked UCLA. So Arizona will know a lot more about them after that three-game stretch where they have to play the three bigger conference teams. But so far, so good for the Wildcats. And it's been fun to watch as we've seen Adia Barnes try to mix uh, the new and the old. The core of this team is the returners, whether they're picking up new roles or returning to the roles they had before. You know, Kate Reese leading this team, uh, Lauren Ware, Benuyani, Sam Thomas, all you know, really holding key positions as, as starters. Uh, for this team, along with uh, Shayna Pellington, who's really stepped up her role as the starting point guard. But then you see you know, Madison Connor taking a, a bigger role than she's had in the past, and some of the other players uh, taking bigger roles. And then you mix in the new, which uh, you know, Aaronette Vonley comes off the bench to give them some scoring punch. Ariah Copeland uh, getting it done on the boards. We've seen a little bit from Coy Love as well. So this team really blending. Uh, players, you know, we, we knew Reese and Sam Thomas would, would be called upon to, to do a lot, but we're seeing these other players mixing in, and it should, just shows what Adia Barnes has been able to do with this roster. Men's basketball really getting their first uh, test uh, tonight, and even that's not going to be a huge test, but North Dakota State uh, coming to town. They're a solid program. They've got a, a pretty good player who can stretch the floor. They gave UNLV kind of all they could handle uh, the other night. Uh, but so far, it's been easy sailing for the Wildcats. You know, the 30, uh, nearly 30-point 30 win over Northern Arizona, a game where Arizona missed their last 10 shots and still blew them out. Then uh, Texas, Rio Grande Valley, which was a 54-point uh, drubbing. Uh, both games not even close. Both games showing what the Wildcats really potentially can do. I think the thing you like a whole lot from the Wildcats is the fact that they're just dominating with assists uh, on buckets. Uh, you know, that first game, I think they assisted on all but four buckets here the other night. Uh, 25 assists on 34 made shots. Arizona also taking care of the ball for the most part. They did have 18 turnovers against Rio Grande Valley, but to 25 assists, I think you'll take that. They blocked eight shots, eight steals. Uh, getting less balanced scoring in this one. You know, Tubelisa led the way with 20. Coloco had 18. Matherin and Kyer each with 13. Umar Balo with 12. So you show that Arizona was able to use that inside presence to really dominate uh, the smaller uh, Rio Grande Valley. As you can look at the three big men. If you want to throw Kim Aiken only adding five, but the three legit big men combining for 50 of Arizona's 104 points. Uh, Arizona shot okay from the three-point line, uh, hitting a little over 34%. So good numbers from Arizona kind of across the board, taking care of business. I think that's what you really like to see. Arizona's not messing around with inferior competition. You know, they let 
the uh, Lumberjacks hang around for about the first 10 minutes and then it was over. This one I don't even think was, was nearly as close. Uh, again, South Dakota State, I think it's a little bit of a measuring stick game. Actually, NAU was a measuring stick game. Because if you look at it, NAU then went to Washington a few nights later and gave the Huskies all they could handle for about 35 minutes. In fact, it was, uh, I noted that at the time, Arizona was struggling to go 0 for 10s when Washington finally had to pull away. So if you look at that as a measuring stick compared to what should be a bottom quarter team in the Pac-12, you can see what, that why Arizona looks head and shoulders above at least the bad teams in the league. Interesting enough, we've seen bad losses mounting for, for the Pac-12. Uh, take out UCLA's impressive win over Villanova, and there's been some really bad losses uh, by Pac-12 teams, which uh, does not help Arizona from a schedule standpoint in terms of league play, but could show just how good Arizona is compared to most of the league. You know, you had UC San Diego, not San Diego State, not even University of San Diego beat Cal. UC San Diego is transitioning to Division I. We're a D3 team not too, too long ago. Uh, Northern Illinois went to Seattle and beat UW. Uh, UC Riverside won on that three-quarter court shot to beat ASU. Tulsa, who again is, is a mid-major, beating Oregon State at their place, at Tulsa. So that's not a horrible loss, but it's not a good loss either. And then Santa Clara beat Stanford the other night. That doesn't even mention, you know, Montana State going to overtime with CU. Um, and then, of course, NAU hanging with UW. And several other teams hung with, with teams over the last few nights. So really what we're I think we're seeing, UCLA, Oregon, Arizona, USC, Probably the class of the league right now. Other teams in the league, most notably UW, Cal, looks like Stanford, may be pretty bad basketball teams. Interestingly enough, we've talked about the Pac-12's woes getting upset. And while you could certainly mention Arizona in this from a tournament standpoint, losing the Buffalo, most notably uh, an 11-seeded Xavier, since like 2002, Arizona does not have bad non-conference losses. All of Arizona's non-conference losses have either been to Power 5 programs or legit mid-majors. Now, mid-majors a term, and this is a pet peeve of mine, mid-majors a term that kind of gets tossed around for anyone who's not in one of the Power 5 conferences, when in reality, you have high majors, mid-majors, low majors. So, NAU's a low major. UC Riverside, UC San Diego, those are low majors. Mid-majors are Mountain West, Conference USA, what they were a few years ago, the AAC. So Arizona's worst non-conference losses were UAB in the Jamel Horn game back in 2008. Uh, they lost to unranked UNLV once or twice. They've also lost to a ranked UNLV. They lost to an unranked BYU, which was the Jimmer game. I think they've also lost to a ranked BYU. Uh, an unranked Butler team, but it's hard to put Butler in that category. And an unranked but solid, um, or at least 500-ish SMU team. I mean, the rest of their losses are to the Alabamas of the world, the Baylors of the world. Uh, high major programs. And not all of them have been great, but all of them have been high major programs. So Arizona, and again, maybe I'm cursing them as they still have some pretty uh, bad opponents ahead, their worst losses have actually been in exhibitions. You know, they lost that one to Humboldt State 
or the NCAA tournament. You know, although Buffalo was a pretty darn good team that year, you should not lose to Buffalo when you have DeAndre Ayton in the middle. You shouldn't lose to 12-seeded Wichita State. You shouldn't lose to 11th-seeded uh, Xavier in a game that you pretty much dominated. But let's see if Arizona can continue because, again, the Arizona men's schedule gets a lot more interesting as we head into uh, the end of the month and really as we get into December. Uh, Arizona, again, has a couple-week uh, game here uh, against the North Dakota State. Then they get the Wichita State and most likely the winner of uh, Michigan uh, in that Vegas tournament. They will get Sacramento State before playing a handful of uh, Pac-12 games, Washington and Oregon State. And then they've got a very interesting uh, tilt where they do get, and again, some weak teams in between, but they get Wyoming, who's solid. They go at Illinois, at Tennessee. So some real proving ground games. That's before a road trip to start Pac-12 play against the L.A. schools and ASU. Arizona's recruiting class for men's basketball, a sparse one, just one player, Dylan Anderson. Tommy Lloyd, uh, effusive in his praise of Anderson, believes he can be an impact player within a year or two. Encouraged by the way he shoots, by his mobility, but also thinks he has a chance to be just a, a strong inside presence, both as a scorer, uh, he has soft hands, he has good footwork, which continue to be built, and eventually as, as a rim defender, he thinks he could become a guy who can uh, block shots with his mobility, looks like a guy who can kind of take you inside and out and can guard inside and out. So an interesting prospect. Again, I don't think he's a guy who comes in and dominates right away. I think he needs to add a lot of strength. I think he needs some refining. But I think you can see that he could be uh, a pretty interesting piece down the line. I think him being a four-star recruit and, and kind of adequately ranked, a guy who is not a sure thing, is not a surefire NBA player, but at the same time a guy who should be able to step into a program like Arizona, get into the big man rotation, early on and eventually uh, be a standout player for the Wildcats. So that is a nice pickup. Uh, Arizona women signing a three-player class that will rank in the top uh, eight. You may have even seen it, six nationally, uh, led by Zeke Nanji's sister. On the football side, though, a little bit of a blow. They did lose uh, Tristan Monday, who's an edge rusher from Scottsdale Saguaro. Monday's an interesting prospect, was a guy who was probably higher rated Entering his senior year, uh, played a little heavier than some teams would have maybe liked. Um, however, it uh, looks like he will be a guy who eventually moves inside. Now, that being said, you, you're still losing a player who a lot of teams liked, and he did decommit and ends up going to Wisconsin. Reading some message boards, reading uh, some, some other things, talking to some people. He's a guy Arizona liked but maybe didn't love. Like the fact they were getting into Scottsdale Saguaro maybe a little bit more than they actually liked Monday as a as a prospect. A good prospect, an intriguing prospect, but a guy who probably needed a lot of work to eventually uh, move inside, bulk up, get strong enough to play interior as opposed to being an edge rusher or a linebacker that he was originally recruited as. So while it's a blow, it's not as big a blow as losing a guy like Zeke Barry uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, I think that one is a much more damaging uh, move because he's a player that could probably come in and help Arizona quicker and is more of a sure thing, although as we know in recruiting, 
there are no sure things. So Arizona football falling uh, in, in a relatively close game uh, in, to a good Utah team. I know a lot of people upset that Arizona lost. Arizona kind of did fall apart a little bit uh, at the end. Really, Arizona's inability to score in the red zone continues to plague them. They're one of the worst teams uh, getting into the red zone. They end up falling 38-29 in a game that was 31-29. They gave up that late touchdown. But again, some encouraging things because this is... A Utah team that blew out Stanford uh, just a couple weeks ago that is on a roll. And Arizona hung with them for the most part. Uh, I don't think anyone ever thought that Utah wasn't the better team. But Arizona kept staying in the game, kept staying in the game. Uh, were able to make big plays, uh, you know, the block punt for the touchdown, uh, converting a few key passes. Um, overall, Will Plummer, maybe with his best game, uh, 19 of 34, 223, a touchdown. He also carried 10 times for 50 yards and uh, a 43-yard run, had the touchdown. Uh, so overall, probably Will Plummer's best game. And if you are looking at this as a measuring stick for the Jed Fish era, I think it's intriguing because we've seen Plummer get a little bit better each game. I, again, don't believe Will Plummer is a Pac-12 starting quarterback. But he he played well in a game against a, a good Utah defense. Arizona scoring 29 points. I know some of that was special teams. But again, Arizona looking good, competing with a ranked team. And in a game, I don't know if they could have necessarily won, but it's a game that they acquitted themselves well. And again, we're still talking moral victories, which is frustrating. I am much more impressed with this game against Utah than I was in the win over Cal because Cal was depleted. Neither team looked good. These these teams, this was a good football game. This was a legit football game. Now Arizona struggled defensively and giving up 294 yards in the air, giving up only 174 on the ground, but uh, TJ Pledger had 119 yards rushing. Arizona allowed uh, Cameron Rising to kind of spread the ball around as seven receivers um, with 22 yards or more for the youths. But again, this is the best team Arizona has seen outside of Oregon. Uh, and when you mix in the UCLA game, those were all three games Arizona was competitive in, at least heading into the fourth quarter. And that shows growth for the program. And again, this team does not have the ability to find ways to win yet. Legitimately, again, the Cal one, I think there is an asterisk. But if you're looking for improvements, if you're looking again for moral victories, you have to like what you saw. I thought uh, Jetfish's play calling looked more cohesive. Now, some of that may be Plummer's ability to run the, the playbook and run the game plan, or is Jetfish developing as a play caller or both? Uh, so, again, I think, again, seeing little things that make me. Uh, pleased with the direction of the football program. Again, I can't stamp, put my stamp of approval and say, yes, Jed Fish is the guy. But at the same time, I, I'm seeing less and less that makes me think this is a disaster of a hire. I know a lot of people still don't like him. I know there's some things behind the scenes that have frustrated people. I know there are other people who absolutely love him. There are a lot of parents who love him. There are a lot of parents who don't. I think a lot of that depends on playing time. 
did have someone ask me, or not ask me specifically, but ask a lot about that running the jet sweep to the weak side, running to the weak side. I think I addressed this on a previous podcast, but have done a little more research. And I know I've mentioned that, you know, some of the pro analysts will say it succeeds more than you think. You only notice it when it fails. But there's actually a chess strategy to it as well. And one of the things, and I don't know if this is what Jed Fish in the Arizona offense is doing, but one of the philosophies is defenses will sometimes when, especially in college football, with the shorter boundary to the sideline, only put one or two players outside the hash mark and keep everything else inside. And the philosophy is you run that play knowing you're not going to get a lot of yards or any yards. But what you're trying to do is you're trying to get one more, maybe even two more players on the defense to either creep over to the hash or even get over the hash between the hash and the sideline because you're trying to open up things in the middle because so many teams will clog the middle uh, when you're on that that hash. Uh, I don't know if that's what Jed Fish is doing, but that is something in doing some research on why do you run short side that... uh, other coaches do that other coaches want to try to bring get one more player not even necessarily out of the box but out at least to the edge near the tackles and away from the the middle of the field so you can attack the middle of the field later on another version of this philosophy is it's actually a a count that you run the jet sweep or you stay with the jet sweep to the short side if there is only you know so many players and it's usually one player outside the tackle to that side it's usually just a corner and that it's an automatic call and that if a second player is over there you call the check down you call the the secondary play again don't know if that's what jed fish is doing i haven't watched enough and don't know his philosophies but that is something that a lot of teams do much like uh, under rich rod arizona would do a run pass based upon how many guys were in the box seven or less you call the run or you stay with the run if the run is already called uh, eight or more, and you automatically go past. And, and you could see, honestly, especially under the offense with Anu Salman, you could see him do a box count real quick. And then other teams would try to disguise how many guys were in the box. So Prince of the East Side likes the music talk, so we're going to return to that. I will tell a funny story. Last night was out with dinner with my daughter after her soccer practice, and she saw me glancing down at my phone as he was sending me some, some DMs. And anyone who is friends with me on uh, Twitter, feel free to send questions or comments or criticisms uh, via either instant message or directly to uh, me on Twitter or on Facebook. So Prince of the East Side sends me this message, and my daughter glances down and goes, Is he really a prince? You know a prince? And I said, Well, yes, but his uh, sovereignty is up for debate. And she didn't know what that meant. I said, No, he just calls himself prince. And she was a little disappointed. I think, you know, even though she's 11 and, and getting, quote-unquote, grown up, still likes the idea of being a princess and, and of princes. But Prince of the East Side liked to talk about uh, lead singers and wanted to know about my take on Metallica. As he said, you know, they've changed a lot in their career. They've lost members, whether it's Dave Mustaine uh, or, or, or Cliff Burton or Jason Newstead. And specifically, he also mentioned the Van Halen base. So could you break down... 80s Metallica versus 90s and beyond Metallica. And, of course, I can. uh, Because I have an opinion on everything music-related, and and you may not agree. But uh, Metallica is a band that 
I have gotten to like their older stuff better the older I have gotten, actually. Um, they're one of the few bands who the album I got into them with is not necessarily my favorite. I knew of Metallica. Um, they were, you know, they were big when I was in high school, but kind of listened to Injustice for All, but really got into heavier music as I started college. And in the early 90s, you know, 91, I started at the U of A. Uh, Black Album came out that summer. Megadeth, Rust in Peace came out in 90. Pantera's Cowboys from Hell came out around that time. A year or two later, we'd get Sound of White Noise from Anthrax. So I really got into heavier stuff. In fact, if you really wanted me to date myself, I joined Columbia House so I could get that Megadeth album. I could get uh, that Pantera album. I got an album by a band called Prong, who I love. So I got into heavier stuff while also getting into grunge and alternative. So it was a really time where I branched out. So I love the Black Album. I think Black Album's a stunning work. I think songwriting-wise, traditional songwriting-wise, it's, it's great. But as I got into that album, as I listened subsequently, I like the older stuff. I am far more a pre-Black Album Metallica fan. Interesting enough, to me, the Black Album's this weird one because I know a lot of people who think... They changed their sound on the Black Album moving forward. Others think Black Album was the beginning of the end, not the end of the beginning, if that makes sense. Um, I personally think it's the end of the beginning. To me, the best two albums by Metallica are Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets. I think those are two among two of the greatest heavy metal albums of all time. If you had to put my feet to the fire, I would take... Ride the Lightning, basically on the strength of Fade to Black and Creeping Death. Creeping Death is my favorite Metallica song of all time. But I like and I love Injustice for All. Wish we could hear the bass in that one. I think um, in many ways, Black is a masterpiece. Black, to me, is maybe the strongest written, but it's also poppy. It's, you know, it's a more traditional hard rock heavy metal album. And then, of course, you get into the later day Metallica with Load and Reload where Metallica went from being one of the best heavy metal bands on the planet to really one of the best hard rock bands on the planet. And I think Load and Reload are very good. I think you could have condensed them into one album and it would be fantastic, uh, great. I, I like some of the stuff on Death Magnetic. I like uh, some of the stuff on their, on their latest one, which I thought was, was a strong, not quite a return to form like a lot of people thought. And then you've got St. Anger, which I think the production value on that uh, James is hitting us over the head with his 12-step uh, program lyrics. It was just, it, it's not that good. I also have some bad memories from a hockey game where they somehow just kept playing that album uh, between shots in the shootout, and we ended up losing in like the ninth round of the shootout uh, to lose a championship game. And I still just remember Frantic playing between each shot. So if a team would score or not score, I'd hear that. But that's my own personal bias. But again, I like older thrash Metallica. I'm a thrash guy. And I like the fact that they added the melodic elements. You know, I think the Black Album has some, some really high points. Um, although I don't necessarily always put on Unforgiven or some of the slower songs, I think they're so well-crafted. But for me, it's the thrash, and it's really those two albums, Ride the Lightning, Master of Puppets. I think when you talk just songwriting, just hard-hitting, just heavy metal, uh, it's really hard to beat those two albums. And it's really hard to beat Arizona basketball right now, whether it's uh, Dia Barnes and the women crushing inferior opponents and, and beating supposedly superior opponents. 
or whether it's Tommy Lloyd and the guys just rolling early on. They'll get an interesting test tonight with North Dakota State, assuming you're listening to this on Tuesday. But we've run really long. We're at 30 minutes already, and so I'm going to wrap it up. So, to the basketball teams, to Jed Fish's crew, which are, are hanging in there and are still making strides, and to fans of Metallica, whether they're old, new, or all-encompassing, all of you can bear down. 